Coming up on Word Matters, what you're not supposed to end a sentence with. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. Of all the various grammar dicta that get meted out, the one about never ending a sentence with a preposition seems to have a special place in the grammar dicta pantheon. Well, as our repeat listeners will surely expect, its vaunted position is in need of adjustment. Here's Amon Shea with a chisel. A lot of the peeves that we come up against are fairly recent. Finalize is an inelegant word. It comes from the early 20th century, even though the word itself has been around since the 1780s. We're constantly coming up with new peeves to replace the old ones. For instance, it used to be considered improper to use like as a coordinating conjunction. One should use the word such as and. And then we've kind of gotten rid of that as a peeve, and we've moved on to being upset that people, often thought to be young people, but in fact everybody, use like in such roles as approximate of adverb. Coney Island's got to be like 50 miles away from here, (laughs) or as a quoted of compartmentalizer. And she was like, I'm going to fine you money if you don't stop saying like. So we've shifted that peeve. But there are other peeves which have really kind of stuck around and shown a staying power that is really remarkable. I think the longest running thing which we've been trying in vain to make people not do when they speak and write English and which they keep on doing, is that of ending a sentence with a preposition. Preposition, stranding, terminal prepositions. This is perhaps best exemplified by that old joke. Somebody from some state, often described as Texas, says, where are you from? And the Harvard student says, I am from a place where we do not end our sentences with prepositions. <laughs> and so the Texan or Oklahoman or what have you says, okay, where are you from, jackass? <laughs> or some other deprecatory term. And that's an old, old joke. It's not as old as the idea that we should not be stranding our prepositions at the end of the sentence, because that goes back to the 17th century. It's hundreds and hundreds of years old. We've been saying this in one way or another for well over 300 years, and we show no signs of slowing down. (laughs) Do you have a horse in this race? Absolutely not. It seems to me a native English syntax to end some sentences with a preposition. In my family, this was a common topic of discussion. I've mentioned before that I grew up in a family that talked about grammar a lot. And ending a sentence in a preposition was something that was discussed. And so it would be pointed out when we heard people do it, and it was definitely prescribed against. But there are certain cases where you kind of have to. Like the example you just said, where are you from? Nobody should say, from where are you? From whence come thou? There's nothing natural about that kind of speech. Absolutely not. Well, one of the things that I've seen, and I think this is a kind of post-talk explanation of rationalizing why you shouldn't end a sentence in a preposition. I've seen people kind of broaden this to say one should not end a sentence with a preposition or similarly insignificant word, Hmm. meaning that one should end a sentence with a word of (laughs) oomph. You know, you want to end with a, a thud kind of rather than a is or a but or a from, which I don't quite honestly think has that much backing. For a long time, people thought that this came from Dryden, 
the poet, John Dryden, who said this, I believe, twice. I believe it's from Dryden. Are you telling me it's not from Dryden? Well, because Dryden has had this blame pinned on him in my mind anyway for a long time. Dryden has had this onus of responsibility for hundreds of years. He mentions it again twice. The first time was in, I think, 1672. He's passing judgment on, he's talking trash about Ben Jonson's poetry. And he says, the preposition at the end of the sentence, a common fault with him in which I have but lately observed to my own writings. And then he mentions it again in 1691. He's writing to a different young poet. And he says, I remember I hinted somewhat of concluding your sentences with prepositions or conjunctions, sometimes which is not elegant. And I think he kind of republished his own book of poems in 1685 because he wanted to rearrange some of the prepositions and not put them at the end of the sentences. And for a long time, we've always blamed him. However, there is a kind of recent development, which is that there's a professor at the University of Viga named Nuria Yanaz Buza. She's a professor of linguistics, and she specializes in the history of English prescriptivism. And she, in fact, wrote her PhD dissertation on preposition stranding. She found this book from 1646, which is well before Dryden started complaining about this, a book titled The English Accidents. And it was written by Joshua Poole. And he wrote about the importance of placing words, quote, in their natural order. And he advocated changing whom did you give your book to, to to whom did you give your book? And this is a man I told you of and of whom I told you. She really kind of dug into this and found that when Dryden died, that he had a copy of one of Joshua Poole's mm-hmm. books. It was a direct line between Poole and Dryden. And I don't believe that Poole emphatically argued against it, but neither did, really did Dryden. I mean, nobody really laid down a hard rule at the time, but we trace it to him. And I think that it seems entirely likely that this did originate before Dryden and goes back to Poole, which means that this is now in the first half of the 17th century. This is a very, very long tale for a kind of prescription that doesn't have that much basis in <laughs> rational thinking. Wow, that's exciting. So it was in the air. And honestly, the fact that it's Dryden making this objection kind of almost makes you realize that this objection is not about practicality. It is about aesthetics. Right, Right. absolutely. You talked about ending the sentence with a word of power or a word that has substance to it, essentially being the object of the preposition or a verb, I suppose, if you were reorienting the sentence to avoid having the preposition be at the end. It's easy for Dryden to say this, Dryden, who wrote poems and was not thinking so much about the practicality of communication when he was making this objection. Your first example was the one about where are you from? That's a completely idiomatic phrasing that we would use in speech because that is how we think. We aren't thinking about putting the where at the end of something say, you are from where. We would not immediately grasp that because it makes no sense. We would take the pronoun where, which is our first thought, and then the other words would then follow to say, where are you from? It would just make perfect sense. It would be completely understood. And it would be really the most practical way of phrasing that. It doesn't have the concern of aesthetics that Dryden seems to be right. worried about. It was very much an aesthetic concern, I think. And that was mirrored in the kind of grammarians who followed because nobody came out at first and said, this is something you just can't do. They did say it was inelegant. So Bishop Louth, in uh, his short introduction to English grammar, said that this is an idiom which our language is strongly inclined to, placing a terminal preposition. But he thought it was more graceful to move it up in the sentence. And then similarly, we see that Noah Webster said that this practice is allowable in conversation, but in the grave and sublime styles of writing, he thought it was inadmissible. 
But he's still acknowledging that this is something that the language kind of has. And it wasn't really until 1783 that we saw more of a firm thing. Hugh Blair said we should avoid concluding sentences with an adverb, a preposition, or any inconsiderable word. So it's still, in a way, is even though it's advocating it as a rule, it's this kind of broad thing. It's not just a preposition. It's an inconsiderable word, which I think is an aesthetic concern. And a lot of these usage writers, we talked about Baker not too long ago, and his rules that he also had were not in his mind. And for many of these usage writers were not rules, and they have been turned into rules. The consideration was about elegance of communication, wanting to write elegantly, right? This is a, aspiring to be a writer who will be read because the writing is beautiful, right? Because of this beautiful writing. And somehow that aesthetic concern has gotten translated over the years into you don't know how to speak the language. You are a barbarian. You are, you are abusing the language by using these words in this order. Absolutely. And I think that that concern for aesthetics is even in Strunk and White. Some people love Strunk and White as a lexicographer, as a descriptivist. I find it tedious. But viewed through the lens of a concern with beautiful writing, with communicating in a way that is elegant and that is pleasurable to read, they look less like rules and more like guidance, which I think is, to be fair to these usage writers, is probably how they were intended. It's an interesting point that you brought up, Emily, because Hugh Blair, who said to avoid ending sentences with any inconsiderable word, he followed up by saying, such sentences are always enfeebling and degrading, which just sounds like <laughs> a real judgment of style, and he finds them wanting. So it is a stylistic judgment. And I think you're entirely correct that then we've translated a stylistic judgment to one of grammatical judgment, which is something gets lost there, because it's not a matter of grammar. Some people have, have tried to say, well, it was based on the, the idea that Latin could not finish a sentence with a preposition, similarly to how you cannot split the infinitive, et cetera, et cetera. And that this is represented as an attempt to enforce this sentence structure on English, which is, of course, not a Latinate structure language. But one of the things that's then funny about that is then once we've kind of made this an imaginary rule, we start coming up with imaginary things to say about it. And one of the best known ones is one that was thoroughly debunked by our friend Ben Zimmer, which is the famous Winston Churchill quote in which he responds to somebody changing his prepositional order by saying, this is the sort of nonsense up with which I shall not put. Mm -hmm. And Ben found, of course, that this was not found in Churchill's writings. It was said by somebody else much before that. So we created this kind of mythology even about making fun of the, the, the rule <laughs> we were inventing. The whole thing is invented. Well, that's I mean, so fun to think about. A bit of arrant pedantry up with which I will not put is the one that I remember. We'll be back after this break with more. You're listening to Word Matters from Merriam-Webster and New England Public Media. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Neil Servan. 
Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for the Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. Meanwhile, the terminal preposition, this dangling preposition, goes back to Old English, and it's actually required. It is really unnatural in a bunch of different situations. WH words are almost always at the front of questions in English. This is just their role. Like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why is this here? So to try to avoid that is unnatural Mm. to English. And then also there are cases where relative clauses with that, for example, it's near a river that we walked beside. It's near a river beside which we walked. Like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. Strunk and White actually wrote, not only is the preposition acceptable at the end, sometimes it is more effective in that spot than anywhere mm. else. And most prescriptive guides that we have, the American Heritage Dictionary wrote, English syntax not only allows, but sometimes even requires final placement of the preposition. Mm. Everybody has really agreed on this. But it's become this zombie rule that then exists on. And so several years ago, I remember looking at the guides that some collegiate writing programs would put online. And there, it is very, very common to see them telling students to avoid. This is often listed in a list of common errors. The webpage that I saw at the University of Iowa said it has become acceptable to end a sentence with a preposition in conversational speech. Term papers, however, should not be written in conversational language, wow. which is wrong in like five wow. different levels. That is outrageous. It's such a shame to see on a writing program webpage. Oh, I mean, it's uh, heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Two thoughts about this. One is that there is, I think, a misunderstanding of what grammar is. First of all, the general public thinks spelling is grammar, and they think that phonetics are grammar. They think anything connected to language is grammar. Grammar is actually the natural syntax of a language, the natural way a language works. It's a kind of map of its function. It's not a set of rules that we try to squeeze it into. It's not a square peg in a round hole, and I think that's misunderstood. But also, I think this rule is particularly easy to absorb or understand, and then it's easy to replicate. It's easy to condemn it. The rule is sort of easy to repeat without any thought about actually putting it in practice. But I have a question for each of my fellow editors. Do you avoid the terminal preposition in your writing? Not at all. No. I would only avoid it if I thought I was using it in a forced way. I mean, if you think about it, what does a preposition do? Its function is to show relationship, the relationship to the object of the preposition. So the object of the preposition is a noun that you have a relationship with, right? And you're expressing a relationship of place, of time, of purpose, perhaps. When I say my hat is on the hook, right? Hook is the object of the preposition. And I'm telling you where my hat is in relationship to that hook. In a lot of cases, between the subject and the object, you can put the preposition and have it sort of be in the middle. And the logical place of thought is like, I'm thinking of my hat. I'm thinking of where it is. It is on the hook. Now I visualize it hanging on the wall. But when you don't always know the object that you want to express, as you talk, sometimes you will say, the river we're walking beside, like I think Emily mentioned, that is a completely natural use because the river besides which you walk requires this torquing of language, torquing of thought that wouldn't naturally occur to you. So you would say the river that you walk beside because you know where the river is, you know where you are. And then the idea of relationship 
sort of is what you are coming around to determining. And so there are instances where we have this natural inclination to end with the preposition because that relationship is what we are ultimately getting to, like I just said there. But you're saying also in writing, you want to make it more explicit. And I will confess, certainly, Emily, that I would always just want to make sure it, everything is crystal clear. You could obviously say he put his hat on, full stop. You know, it's perfectly fine. But this I don't think about anywhere near as much as split infinitives, which I think a lot of people notice and find an impediment to reading because they notice it and then they stop reading. You know, They want to correct you. I love split infinitives. I think to boldly go is much more evocative than to go boldly or boldly to go. But there are instances when I do think about it, I'll allow. I think I used to avoid the terminal preposition more than I do now, because I can correct somebody on why they're wrong for correcting me for using a terminal preposition. And I didn't used to have that tool in my toolbox. But I feel like it's a rule that's relaxing, but maybe it's just me that's relaxing about the rule or that has relaxed about the rule. Well, I find that like Robert Baker, who we referenced earlier, I quitted the school at an early age. So being unlettered in Robert Baker's words, I make all these errors. People like to think of his errors. I willfully split my infinitives and strand my prepositions and start sentences with every word under the sun that you're not supposed to start. And I have no idea how to pronounce most words. Um, and yet you persist in being a published writer. And so. yet I persist in somehow being understood by most people I speak to. I think that terminal prepositions, as Peter said earlier, it's such an easily identifiable thing for most people. Kind of like starting a sentence with and or but. It's mm -hmm. very clear that this is being done. That I think it's going to stick around for another 350 or 370 years. As a kind of false rule. As an easily misinterpreted rule. As yep. a stylistic thing that's then being reified as grammatical in nature, even though it has really nothing to do with grammar. I think it's just easy enough to observe and scold that it's very useful if you're interested in doing that sort of thing. I think it's much more difficult to take the kind of nuanced thing of not ending a sentence in an insignificant word, because what does that mean? Significant to you might not be significant to me. Exactly. I mean, so that's much more difficult. But just saying, you can't put a preposition right before the little dot. It's kind of any machine can figure that out. One counterexample of that is the increase in use over recent decades of phrase ending in at. Where is it at? Like right. where it's mm. at. My sense is that where it's at has become far more common in edited text than it ever was before. And that it, it is an idiom all its own, right? So it has stepped away from perhaps this terminal preposition structure and is now has this idiomatic function that gives it a kind of a, a hall pass to go into this territory that is otherwise shunned. But I think that is an interesting case of a terminal preposition that is becoming more widely accepted. And Emily, you might just have a sense about this, but I trust your sense about these things more than I trust Robert Baker and his reflections on the English language. So I'm going with you on this. It's very kind. Thank you. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. 
Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.